You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey, everyone. Just wanted to let you know, before the show starts, we've got my good friend, Delegate Pat McGeehan from the second best Virginia, West Virginia, on the show today. And we're talking a lot of stuff, everything from... Uh, you know, Roman history to some books that Pat wrote, and everything's going to go ahead and be in the show notes today. So I just want to let you know that up front so that way we can jump into it and have a good time. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, Pat McGann, it's been a minute since we last spoke. How's it going? Good. How you been? Uh, I've, I've been better. I don't know when this episode is coming out. I'm hoping that's a little bit after the whole coronavirus situation has ended, but I got a quick story for you. Um, the Washington Times, we shut down our building like months ago at this point. Now we're going on, you know, day 60 past judgment day. And we've got a guy, um, he's our media coordinator, George Gerbo. He's actually from, I think he's from your district that you represent. So like the day that um, Northern Virginia and DC started getting coronavirus people coming in, because apparently when you have coronavirus, what do you do? You fucking go everywhere. Um, (laughs) He ran to West Virginia so we're on a we're on a Zoom call with our. Wait, did this guy bring the Corona here? Is that it? Well, we we were thinking that at first, but you know we well everyone thought I'm that I blame this guy regardless for all my troubles for six weeks. Things are not. I mean, things are kind of tying up. But like his argument, we were on a Zoom call about a week later. His argument was: Listen, when shit hits the fan, you go to West Virginia. We've been saying this since the Cold War. We've been saying this since ever. Just go there because no one wants to invade it. Nobody's going to bomb it. You're safe. Nobody wants to do business here. (laughs) (laughs) I I kid you not. Within a day, I go, I uh, I turn on TV. Fox News comes on. I see Jim Justice on TV. Next thing you know, it's like West Virginia has their first coronavirus case. And now we're all looking at him. So it's been, you know, we've been able to find humor throughout all of this. But now not even West Virginia is safe. Yeah, they, you're right about the, the, the whole Cold War in West Virginia with the Greenbrier because full circle, um, um, it, well, if you're familiar with the, the, I don't know what it was officially called, but they had a little bunker basement that you could still visit at the Greenbrier Resort in southern West Virginia where they would evacuate the government from Washington, D.C., you know, in the 50s and 60s. And uh, uh, presumably, you know, to, to the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, because it was more safe. But Jim yeah, now, Justice, now, they, now they throw everybody in that weather. OK, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. The la- I think but the Jim last Justice part- owns the Greenbrier Resort now. What? So. so he's basically set. Well, um, you know, um, he's been having some financial problems as of late. But uh, uh, <laughs> didn't he get uh, his Trump bucks? Uh, Did he uh, get his Jerome I'm, Powell money? Oh, yeah. I think we did get a, a few billion dollars, uh, the state government did anyway. I, don't, I think did the federal government pulled that out of their savings account. I'm not oh, sure. Yeah, because they're, they're so great at having that rainy day. Oh, was it a pretty press? 
It's yeah. of course it's him. It's Jerome Powell with the freaking printer, just like his eyes are bleeding. Just you know, he, <laughs> more people. I've never seen so many tweet about the feather. So many people tweet about the Federal Reserve now than ever before. And yeah. you know, not to say it's the sexiest of topics, but when I'm having people who I've never discussed politics with, or nonetheless monetary policy, suddenly saying, you know, we could just print our way out of this, and maybe we should just print away our debt. I'm like, ah, I'm ready for it to end. Send in the murder yeah. hornets. Send in Corona Wave Two. Like I'm ready. Like that's, I'm good. That's at scary. That's scary. It's uh, you know, it's 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 scary in the short run because. Uh, the left has been preaching, um, you know, obviously this more heavy expansionary um, um, of type government policies, and they are never able, never able to answer the question, well, how are you going to pay for them? Um, and so given our recent experience here with this panic, and I just read a report where the federal uh, uh, debt and borrowing, which is just monetizing the debt, and the, and the second quarter is going to hit three trillion dollars. Um, it seems like they don't have to answer that question anymore. How are you going to pay for this? Well, nobody on the right in Congress, really, except for a couple, are asking that question. So it's an unfair question, <laughs> which is a little nervous. I, I mean, printing money, especially right now, has been truly a bipartisan victory for a lot of people because they're just like look what i was able to go ahead and bring back to my state and everything else i mean of course you had you had ted cruz say well i didn't want to do it but you know we got we got bail out the american people then you have Rand paul and everyone thought he was dying so nobody listened to him and you've got mitch mcconnell basically saying you know we'll just we'll just do what needs to be done it's like that's a very lazy answer yeah i like i like i like rand um he needs to shave the beard, though. I mean, you're like just to go along with what you're saying. I mean, it seems like he, you know, I'm like, you know, man, come on. I mean, I understand maybe you're trying a different look, but it's, it's like the mark of survival. Not, 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 this point. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you know that, that's a good segue right into our, our topic tonight. But uh, but you know, come on, if you're coming out of uh, what the presumable, uh, if you're coming off your sick bed, you know, before you take mic time, maybe you should shave. But whatever. It's it, it's been it, 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 this is truly one of those times where we're going to look at this a few years from now. And I think a lot of people are going to say, um, I, I would rather us overreact than underreact. But that's such an armchair quarterback statement. And, you know, I, I, I was on a few uh, I was on a few podcasts and the radio show and a live stream. Now, since everyone is at home, everyone wants to do everything now. So they invite me on because they ran out of interesting people. And it's so funny because, like, depending on where I'm at. If you're the uninteresting guy when you're a guest and I'm your guest. Just be happy. (laughs) Just be happy. Don't think about it. Okay. Just take the ticket. Enjoy the ride. But, you know, depending on where I go, I'm either on the left wing bench or the the right wing bench. 
And, uh-huh. and, and more often than not, I've been taking the Republican seat more often. And I've got these liberals just screaming about these absolutely totalitarian policies. It's like, you know, Trump's a fascist, but how dare he not take full control? And, you know, these people are, you know, going after minority communities. How are they supposed to survive if they're indoors? And that's like, shoot everyone on site who's outdoors, not wearing a mask. And, you know, it's it, it's been one of those moments where even if I were to come up with a very pithy answer about things, I've, I've gotten tired about it. And um, more often now than ever, I've just been telling people I don't have an answer. And anyone that says they have an answer as to how to unilaterally fix this is probably lying because the only thing we can do is really evaluate how we as individuals are going to come out as stronger or weaker. And this, this is what ultimately brings us into our topic because, you know, people will be talking about coronavirus until, you know, four horsemen come and sectarian violence in the Middle East ends. But, um, you know, when we met in 2018, I knew that you had this reputation for being a practicing stoic. And honestly, I had not heard that since college and I rarely went to classes. So my knowledge of it was essentially non-existent. And then I, uh, I got a copy of your book, uh, Stoicism in the State House, a few months after that. And I read it and it started getting gears turning. And I, I put it down, think about it for a while. And then over the past couple months, it, it seems to have made more of a comeback for people, especially as I think more of the American population are withdrawing from paying attention to the rustle and bustle of what goes on in D.C. And working in in D.C., especially in a newsroom, for me, I become desensitized to a lot of things. I, I hear I hear the bullshit all day. So what, what I did was I picked up your book again, but around halfway through it, I'm like, I, I feel like I, I would be better if I went back and read some other stuff. So I picked up one of your favorite books, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And I have to tell you, other than probably the Holy Bible itself, that book has had probably the most profound impact on me since I read it. And I got the audiobook version of it so I could listen to it again than probably any other book. And this is this is one of those things where I think it's once you really understand the Stoic mindset, there, there is really no going back because you're going to find yourself wrestling with these thoughts all the time. Um, for, those of you, the, for those of those listening who don't know about your story and how you started really trying to jump into the world of Stoic philosophy, how, how did that start? When did that start? So I was trying to deal with, you know, I, I, I'd always had some some issues from my childhood and from the service that, you know, I was, I was always trying to sort of, I guess, grapple with, um, I, I call them my past demons. And, uh, once I got into the legislature, the, the adversity there led me to start thinking about some sort of philosophy, a uh, philosophy of life, really, to to confront the adversity so because so, so i knew in the legislature how to apply logic and solve the 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 practical problem of policy so how to make decisions on policy just from reading classical political philosophy um, um austrian economics things probably your listeners are well acquainted with and that's all fine and good uh but how do you conduct yourself and implementing that policy was something that was uh, 
left unanswered in my mind. And that combined with what I was just sort of telling you about with my personal life, my personal um, experiences from, from my youth and from my younger years, uh, I just, uh, and, and, and I have a tendency to realize. So I, 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 it, that's to make a long story short, what led me into Stoic philosophy. Actually, I was trying to do some research to write a book. Uh, this is going back seven or eight years ago. And I kept coming across a guy named Epictetus, um, who I only briefly remembered hearing about in college. And uh, I, I, I started reading more and more about him. And that led me to guys like Marcus Aurelius and others. And um, so I put down, I can't remember really the book I was working on. I put that aside, said, okay, I'm going to focus on, on, on this. Um, but that, that harkened back the, the exposure I had to stoicism. And it was just a very brief exposure when I was in college. Uh, my, I, I clearly remembered it from one day in like a philosophy 101 class I was forced to take. And uh, it, it might've been half an hour in the, of the lecture, um, if that, and the only reason why I really remember it so clearly was because, um, I also had met the guy that was discussed in this lecture in my philosophy class. Uh, I believe just a few months before the, the class before that, that day I'm telling you about, and it was Admiral James Stockdale, um, who was a, uh, aside from being a practicing Stoic, uh, he was uh, a war hero, a Medal of Honor winner, and he was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam for something like seven and a half years. And he was the Navy's senior ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton, which is what the, the, uh, the aviators uh, you know, gave to, uh, as a nickname to that infamous uh, POW camp, POW prison camp. And uh, he was he was tortured dozens of times. Um, you know, he, he withstood four years of solitary confinement. Uh, but right before he was shot down or had deployed, basically, to to uh, his his. Uh, he was a pilot, a commander of a carrier uh, squad an aviation wing on a carrier before he deployed to. Vietnam, he went to graduate school at Stanford. And uh, while he was at Stanford getting his degree, he was in his late 30s, um, he was exposed to Stoic philosophy and took an immediate liking to it. And in his uh, uh, memoirs, um, I can't remember the name of them. They're not really memoirs. It's a short paper he wrote. Um, I think it's called Courage Under Courage, testing the Epictetus's doctrine in the laboratory of uh, human. Ex- uh, I can't remember. It's some long. It's a mouthful. Anyway, yeah, yeah, I can't remember it. But anyway, I want to say Courage Under Fire, but I think that's just a movie I remember with um, with uh, Megan. Whatever. Anyway, I'm getting off topic. But bottom line is, he was parachuting into North Vietnam after he got shot down, and he literally told himself. He's leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. And so Epictetus was the Stoic philosopher in the second century, uh, right prior to Marcus Aurelius's generation. And uh, what's interesting is Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus 
those two guys are, uh, other than Seneca, uh, those guys are what we uh, have the most about f- uh, 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 from Stoic literature. So Seneca, and we, we might be getting a bit ahead. Seneca, I found out he was a slave. And a lot of his actual, you know, a lot of his proverbs and a lot of his wisdom was written down by other people. So, like, there's no actual. Well, well, well you're, you're, that's Epictetus, actually. That's Epictetus. Yeah, okay. Epictetus was the slave, and that's that's really cool. The yeah. dichotomy you got between Epictetus, the slave, and Marcus Aurelius, an emperor. You know, that's really cool. Seneca, Seneca was Nero's like right hand guy. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. But um, Seneca, we have the most uh, Stoic literature from Seneca that survives today. But so you got Seneca, you've got Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and then you have some fragments from Masonius Rufus, who was Epictetus' uh, first-rate teacher in Rome um, ahead of him. We have some fragments from him. Other than that, you know, we have um, you know the first. We have some stuff from I think Zeno of Sidium, who was the founder of the Stoic school, and then um, what wasn't he homeless? I believe so. I mean, I think tradition has it that he was he was shipwrecked in Athens or in uh, uh, on the Greek mainland. He was an Easterner from uh, Asia Minor, I think. And, and that's and I, I, yeah. I mean, I I only bring that up because I mean, everyone that we've mentioned, just when you look at how they lived their lives, it, it's remarkable that even then we are still talking about them now. Yeah, I think that says something about the fact that people, whether they were slaves or whether they were emperors, whether they were college professors or whether they were construction workers, this 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 has been able to persist beyond them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it it's pretty incredible. Yeah, it it, it it's a testament of the power of the philosophy. I think really the ideas that that they bring forth because it's very practical. You. Know, before Stoicism, uh, you had the two Greek giants, Plato and Aristotle. And those guys covered, you know, I mean, Aristotle was, is arguably the world's first scientist. So they covered broad areas of knowledge. By the time Stoicism comes about, the Stoics are focused on practicality. They really want to take philosophy and just apply it to their everyday life. And that's what they're really focused on. And it's interesting that you say that uh, uh, Stoicism is is making some sort of, I don't know, resurgence or people are at least interested in it right now with everything going on now with the adverse times we're living in. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not. Um, I'll take your word for it. But uh, uh, Stoicism itself came about in an era of great adversity and of great worry and concern and uh, and fear because um, uh, prior to Stoicism's sort of, I don't know, birth in 300 BC, earlier on in the fourth century BC, you had um, the Peloponnesian War, where the Greek city states basically destroyed each other between Sparta and their allies and the Athenians. Um, and then in the in the wake of that. Alexander the Great emerges from Macedonia and he comes from the north down through the Greek peninsula and subjugates all the Greek city-states who were once, you know, the polis, the great Greek city-state. And they're just basically in ruins. 
And then, of course, Alexander the Great's empire collapses and, and splinters up after his death uh, in, I think, 323 B.C. So some two decades after Alexander the Great's empire is destroyed, there's so much turbulence, that's when Stoicism uh, starts developing. So I, th- I don't think that's a coincidence either. I think people were probably just like today, you know, uncertain yeah. times. And, and I mean, the thing that the thing that always confused me about it was I my my biggest struggle. I think this will be my lifetime struggle because I'm always I'm always each time I think I find an answer or something, I always end up coming up with 20 other questions about it. My eternal struggle that I'm probably going to die still struggling with is establishing a consistent worldview because, you know, growing up. So I grew up raised in a culturally Christian family, went to uh, you know, Baptist private school. I was given a lot of the prosperity gospel, you know, if you're good, then God's going to reward you. Then I hit my teens and like every other teen, what do I do? If I'm already kind of edgy about that, I give up the Bible and I pick up Ayn Rand. And then I'm, you know, preaching the fountainhead and stuff like that. Then years later, I had my own, you know, conversion back to Christianity. And over the last couple of years, it's been, you know, developing and understanding and applying a Christian worldview to things. And I think that's a problem that a lot of people have. And I'm not going to preach to people what they should believe and how they should believe. But if you don't have a consistent worldview as to understanding who you are, what is your purpose, and what is the function of life itself, you're going to have a lot of problems with many things. And, you know, I, I went to Liberty University and, you know, I dealt with a lot of different people. I, I, I had friends who were Catholic. I had friends who were, you know, Bible Belt evangelicals. And while they all had good ideas about stuff, it was it, it was trying to understand my place in all of it. So my my initial, ad, you know, adverse reaction to Stoicism was, oh, it's just another mindset type of thing. It's another, you know, believe the power of the triangle, Tony Robbins type of thing, except now we're talking about Greeks instead of all these other folks that are just telling you, you just have to think positive and positive things will happen. And what you determine is going to happen is what's going to manifest. So I just kind of wrote it off like that. But when you really jump into it, it's less about, you know, making bad situations good. It's more about understanding that bad things are going to happen, how you react to it is a choice. And I think that's where even a lot of these, you know, mindset coaches online and on TV, you know, they're very anti-stoic in that sense because they're like, well, if bad things happened, then you obviously allowed it to happen. And, you know, you, you need to try harder with, with Marcus Aurelius, you know, he, he mentions, um, I don't, I don't, I do not think this was in meditations. I think I heard this somewhere else about him but basically when you know when he was emperor before him and his legions went off to fight um he wanted to see how his people would react to the simplest of adverse situations so he put a boulder in the middle of the city street and he wanted to see how how people were going to react to it were they going to go home were they going to try and break it down were they going to try and go around it were they going to basically let that boulder be the thing that stopped them from going and doing what they had to do that day? And he uh, apparently he camped out on like a hill with a few guards and just watched people for nights. I mean, he was just disappointed because each time he thought somebody was actually going to do something, you know, to actually get past the boulder, they would just quit and go home. 
what he ended up doing was he he got a, a sack of coins and he wrote a letter and he put it under, you know, he was able to somehow slide underneath the boulder. So apparently he goes home and the next day, this one dude basically gets a couple of his friends and they just push the boulder. Somebody took the opportunity and was like, hey, I'm going to be a leader in the situation. Let's push the boulder. So they get it off the path and the guy finds, you know, a, a bag full of gold and a letter from the freaking emperor. And, you know, to kind of paraphrase it, and I'm totally screwing this up because my memory is shit, but, right. you know, Marcus is basically like, listen, there are going to be obstacles in life that is guaranteed, but the obstacle that is in the way is the way. That's and, uh, Ryan Holiday, right? The obstacle yes. is the way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, just listening to that story, I, I had to kind of, you know, think about it because I'm like, you know what? whether that was something that actually happened or whether that's just a legend that comes from, you know, time itself, there's something so true about that because I think often we believe that we are owed great lives, lives of comfort, that if you're a good person, only good things should happen. So whether it's through, you know, religion or just our secular society, bad things happen to bad people. It's very lazy logic that still persists, but that concept of, you know, it's going to happen. You have a choice as to how you will let it affect you. That does the one thing that I don't think many people want to do. It puts the, the moat, it puts the whole target on you. Right. And yeah, that it's, itself it's, is, it's not what happens to us, but how you react to it. That matters. That's Epictetus in a nutshell. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, and I, and I, I guess I'll, I'll, I guess I'll add a few things uh, in the way of Marcus Aurelius and how what he saw can relate to us today. Um, Marcus Aurelius wrote his meditations um, like, you know, already as a journal to himself. But when he was writing it, he was he was he was on the on the front uh, fighting Germanic tribes, you know, on the edges of the frontier. And he was exposed to. Um, you know, death constantly. And if you, you notice some, some very dark themes, if you read it for the first time, you come away with, whoa, you know, this is some of this is a little dark. I mean, he was not writing that thinking, oh, this can become a New York Times bestseller. No, like, that no, was right. freaking diary. That was yeah. a journal. Yeah. So he, he was really focused on one aspect of stoicism and, and, and that is, ensuring you're you're very acutely aware of your own mortality and um um you can you can pick that theme up constantly through his meditations and i think today when we're going through this coronavirus crisis or really it's 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 fear that's driving all, a lot of this um people are um or have not been exposed to the thought anyway of of their own mortality or at least they're not very comfortable with it yeah um and that's it, part of the philosophy that people really try and shoot down it's just not something that we i mean nobody yeah. nobody ever wants to talk about it right right and and the stoics they were very they didn't not only wanted to talk about it they wanted to constantly focus on it and uh, one one way to phrase it now is negative visual, visualization 
And um, Admiral Stockdale will talk about this in some respects. And he was able to to wither all those years as a POW by embracing Epictetus and guys like Marcus Aurelius. Um, and negative visualization is is pondering or thinking about the worst that could happen to you today, the worst that could happen to you um, in the near term or in the long term, however you want to look at it. It's a practice you can perform mentally. And then figuring out um, a ways that you could rationally cope with uh, the worst that could happen. And then what you usually find is that you've exaggerated the possibilities that could happen to you to begin with. Um, and even if the worst were to happen, you've already come to peace with figuring out, you know, how you're going to you know, personally deal with it. And, uh, and so it's, 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 you know, it, might work for some people. It, it, it works for me for, for the most part. Uh, but that's, but, you know, in, in some respects you do, Marcus Aurelius was, was focusing on his own mortality, you know, because he might've been slaughtered by barbarians uh, on the frontier. And that was probably the worst that could have happened. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he gets, he, he gets such a bad rep for being the guy that brought the plague back home and i mean i think a lot of people who might even have known his name but don't, don't know anything about him remind you know remember him as the guy that set up all the bad things to happen in gladiator with russell crow but you know i mean this is this is a dude he, he gets the reputation for being one of the last actual good emperors of rome but then That's you look at nicholas Ma- or niccolo machiavelli's um discourses on livy he calls uh the five the last five good emperors and Marcus Aurelius is the last. Okay, so I wasn't yeah. just combining things and making that up. No, no, that's that was. <laughs> See, I'm retaining things, but uh, I mean, just you know, just a brief overlook at, of his life. I mean, he his wife is potentially cheating on him all the time. His stepbrother, who's like his co-emperor, is uh, you know, he's just a, a philander. He's a terrible person to have co-leading Rome. Uh, one of his best friends tells everyone one night while Marcus is out of town or something that, you know, the emperor is dead and he's the emperor. And then when Marcus comes back, he kills himself. And then he's dealing with these constant wars. And then towards the latter years of Marcus's life, he's dealing with the Antonine plagues, which lasted plague, which lasted like 13 years. I mean, if you want to talk about somebody who inherited like the worst possible scenario, I mean, that's a Netflix series all in itself, but yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when, when it comes to what, what you just mentioned, uh, one thing that I do remember him saying in meditations was, you know, ask yourself, what is the worst thing I can imagine? What is so big that I cannot endure it? Once you come to that, you know, visualization, you're going to realize how embarrassed you are. Because a lot of people, and I think, you know, it's so funny. We We are truly a blessed country, despite our problems and things. We live in a very comfortable point of not only the world right now, but just of human history. We're incredibly blessed and we have increased levels of depression. We have increased levels of, of anxiety. A lot of millennial men will now say that they don't feel that their lives have purposes. And ultimately I think a lot of the fears we have 
and this is something I've definitely experienced. And, you know, I, I'm pretty open about it, folks. Like it took years of therapy to understand this. Anything that can go on in my mind is almost always going to be worse than what a situation actually is. And I think the problem that a lot of people don't grasp about stoicism, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, is they think it's like all these other things. It's like, oh, just manifest better things. It's ultimately comes down to bad things will happen. There will be obstacles. What you do because of that is ultimately what's going to be the ultimate judgment call. Because one thing that I've had to do during this period at home, you know, I'm lucky. I get, I get to work from home. But, you know, the Stoics don't tell you to compare misery or something like that. They don't tell you to compare. They just say, focus on improving yourself as a person. And during this time, I've had to really ask myself, you know, eventually this is going to end. We have to go back to work. I have to go out and do regular shit like everyone else. But during this extra time I have, during this time I have to myself, I can either have left the situation being improved, I could stay the same, or I could be worse off. I could be constantly watching TV. I could be constantly looking for all the new updates on Google. I could be arguing with people about, you know, what Trump is doing right or what Trump is doing wrong. I have ultimately no control over any of this. I can only control my own direct outcome. Right. Yeah, that's that's definitely you're you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, the one thing that drew me to the Stoic philosophy, and I think one of the core principles of it, is the dichotomy of control, which which Epictetus outlines in the first line of his handbook, which is called the Intraridian. And you alluded to um, Epictetus earlier on. I think, but you just conflated Seneca with Epictetus. I'm confusing um, all the guys with the Latin. That's easy to do. <laughs> um, but but you're right in the respect of uh, Epictetus never actually wrote anything down. It was his student Arian that wrote uh, his discourses down, which are basically lectures that his teacher Epictetus taught. And so there was uh, there was originally eight books in the discourses. Only four survived. And then uh, a summation of all those eight books condensed in a little pamphlet that Arian also wrote called uh, the Enchiridion, which from Greek is usually translated as manual or handbook. And in the first line, it's um, focus on what's up to you. Um, some things are up to us. Some things are not. Essentially, focus on what's within your control and discount what's not within your control. And so that's the dichotomy of control. You have ultimately control over only what you think, basically. And those your, your thoughts are ultimately the, the one thing that are that is entirely under your control. And it is your thoughts that, that generate um, the negative passion. So if you have the wrong thoughts, then you will uh, generate negative, uh, the negative negative thoughts generate negative actions usually and uh, you're going to start demonstrating devices and so the stoics were very very exceptional um in in the with regard to virtue they they uh, ultimately wanted to pursue virtue over everything and they elevated virtue as the only means to achieving happiness 
Um, and so they broke with Aristotle. But Aristotle said, yeah, you need virtue, but you need a couple other things too, like, you know, some material possessions and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the Stoics, you know, and you don't have to buy into everything with Stoicism, by the way, but, you know, they believe that virtue in and of itself was the only thing necessary for happiness. Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's it, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, I think, and, and I have another friend of mine I've been speaking about this with, he recently got, uh, I, I sent him an audio book version of Meditations, and he started listening to it, and I don't think he's really on the same page with me about some things, but it's been a good conversation. I mean, you know, go, going back to what you just spoke of, I mean, one of the things in uh, Ryan Holiday's books, um, the in, in one of his books, I think it's his first book, The Obstacle is the Way. He's talking about, you know, understanding what is a bad situation, what is a good situation. He's basically like, well, there's no such thing as a good or a bad situation. Objectively, there is how we perceive the situation. There's how our gut tells us, and then there's how we can change it. And I think for a lot of people that, you know, we're, we're getting into higher ideals there. But um, I, I had... It's been really strange because I did not think that, and you know, like anything new, you know, people want to start talking about things. I shared some uh, quotes by Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, and it's really funny when people start to just pick at things because I had some folks that I went to Liberty University with, and they're like, you know, the, the Stoic philosophy itself is. Uh, you know, it's just not, you know, a lot of the principles are not founded in biblical truth and all this other stuff. And I'm like, wait a second. Didn't, didn't Thomas, I'm sorry, not Tom, didn't, uh, didn't St. Augustine, like, didn't, didn't he credit the Stoics in some of his lectures? There was a lot of, um, I'm a Roman Catholic and I'll always be a Roman Catholic. And I don't find the practice of Stoic ethics to be in conflict with my faith. Um, I think the two can live in harmony quite easily. I mean, they're not, one's not trying, like, you know, one is a religion, one has a worldview. There's no real worldview to Stoicism other than just a a mindset of approach to the everyday struggles of life. And I mean, you know, I I, I, I may have been wrong. I think it may have been. You you could get into, the Stoics had a comprehensive, uh, philosophy and they did deal with what they called physics and that to them meant uh metaphysics really in our philosophical term i I mean in meditations alone and like the first part where marcus is like crediting everyone like he's crediting the gods like the guy was still like he still he had his own you know hellenistic i I don't know zeus and all that stuff like he credits mars for some things but like i have picked this up over the years like um uh, uh, John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, um, you know, the Methodists, they found a lot of their inspiration from the Stoics. And a lot of people have picked it up over the years. I don't understand why, you know, yeah. some people try and think, oh, you can never take from one to build the other because then you're building an inconsistent worldview and stuff. It's not, it's not true because yeah. I will point them to Cicero. Um, a lot of the latter Romans that we were just talking about, like Marcus Aurelius, really looked up to their um, great Roman heroes of the past. And those usually were the great Republicans that ironically fought against the, the, the emperors or, you know, the original emperor anyway. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, Marcus Aurelius mentions Cato the Younger, who is probably the uh, the epitome of the Stoic, and uh, uh, you know, took his own life uh, uh, because he refused to 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 allow himself to be used as propaganda. I'm not pro suicide, but that is so metal. Julius Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great story. And, uh, uh, he, he was the last holdout after the Republican army lost under Pompey, the great loss to Caesar at the battle of Pharsalus. Cato, the younger leads about 10,000, um, uh, of the, of the last remnants of the Republicans to Northern Africa, to Utica to, to uh, hold out and carry on the resistance. And, uh, I mean, I'll make a long story short, Caesar later lands with like eight legions and, uh, uh, so outnumbers them, I don't know, six to one. And, uh, one of the other guys, um, at the, at the camp, um, who outranked Cato the Younger, a guy named Metellus, uh, I can't remember, some Roman, he foolishly went out and thought he could beat Caesar in a pitched battle and uh was destroyed so <laughs> all the guys were destroyed and Cato the younger has you know a few hundred guys left inside the walls and he doesn't want to see uh any suffering come to the civilians he evacuates the civilians and uh, a family member um approaches him um uh on Caesar's behalf and says hey Caesar Caesar just wants you to basically just says Caesar just wants you to bend the knee you know, you know, it, he's going to let you go back to the Senate and you can rail and give speeches galore against Caesar uh, and carry on your own political opposition. Uh, but he just wants you to bend the knee, kiss the ring, essentially. And that's it. That's all you got to do. And it's over. And Cato, basically, his response is tell Caesar that uh, tyrants have no legitimate authority <laughs> to demand <laughs> demand uh, 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 to grant pardon. He was going to pardon him, you know, and uh, he says, tyrants have no legitimate authority to pardon me, and there's nothing to pardon, for I have not done any wrong. He is the one that destroyed the Roman Constitution. So so then Cato, uh, I think he reads Plato's famous dialogue, the Phaedo. How long did they allow him to talk? (laughs) No, it was later that night. Oh. Like, he has supper with his family. He goes back up to his room, his quarters, and he uh, he reads uh, Plato's dialogue on Socrates. His, uh, Socrates is talking in that dialogue about the immortality of the soul. And so uh, then Cato draws his sword, and then uh, a servant actually runs in and tries to stop him, and Cato uh, – uh, punches the servant in the face, breaks his, breaks his hand, breaks his hand. So then he can't grab, grip this. So this is all from Plutarch's you know, biography, right? This so is he, so much more interesting than the tragedy of Cato the Younger when you just read it verbatim. Keep going. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he can't grip the sword as, as, as well now because his hand's broken. So he stabs himself through. He runs himself <laughs> through. But it's not, the wound's not fatal. So, uh, so, you know, he, he slumps over and passes out and, you know, his family rushes in and they're like, oh my gosh, what, uh, you know, dad's all messed up. So what are you doing? The, <laughs> Why is his surgeon hand broken? In. It gets better. They get the surgeon in. The surgeon is like stitching him up, you know, 
putting his intestines back in, apparently. I don't know. And then Kato comes to, sees what's happening, and throws him off, and then tears open the wound and tears his guts out to, to make sure that he dies. That is so, so it's a little, cool. It's a little gruesome. And the guy might have been a little bit over the top, but uh, the the point is that he knew Caesar would uh, would really uh, parade him around because he was looked to in Rome as the most principled guy um, on the Republican side. And if he was captured and he was part and he accepted a pardon, Caesar would uh, will use it as propaganda that he's merciful, and that was sort of Caesar's tactic, you know. Uh, the Republicans, their tactic was, hey, we are the true heirs of what's right. We have honor on our side. We have the, the, the unwritten constitution on our side and virtue on our side. Caesar's tactic was, I've been wronged, but even though I've been so wronged, I'm willing to grant my enemies much. You know, it's all propaganda, right? So anyway, um, Cato wasn't going to allow that to so I really like Cato the Younger, but so these guys look to him. They also look into Cicero, and Cicero was Cato's buddy. Um, but Cicero wasn't a, a true practicing Stoic. He actually um, was was uh, uh, what was called an academic skeptic. It was sort of what had become of Plato's philosophy. So kind of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> But he was sympathetic. We got to gotta bring things down to a fifth grade level for me sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was he was sympathetic to Stoicism, and he was uh, he a lot of his 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 famous works had Stoic themes in them. So he was very he was eclectic. So he would he would pick and choose, but he really liked Stoic ethics a whole lot. And um, and he actually said in one case, okay, if I wasn't an academic skeptic, um, I would be a Stoic. So he does say that. At the, towards the end of his life so so and but all these guys marcus aurelius look to these guys they're they're kind of like we would look to george washington and thomas jefferson and those types patrick I, I mean those guys itself i mean just tying into cato like they were reading the the cato letters which were all published anonymously espousing this you know traditional republican virtue and i mean going going back to to marcus because he's really been the one that i've been focusing a lot on recently like you know just with everything you you spoke about like that's some incredible foreshadowing because you know going back to his you know his friend who was the top general of the legions when he i I don't know why or if it was an intentional coup i haven't gotten to that part yet but you know when when Marcus hears that basically everyone thinks he's dead and that this guy is saying he's the emperor, like that was a, that was usually a death notice for everyone. Typically when you did that type of shit, and we even see this now in some banana republics, like you kill everyone's family, you know, no bloodline. So there's no like Shakespearean revenge later, like you're done. Even if it was, you know, misconception or confusion or something, but you know, Marcus, he could have just been like, wow, this this bastard just betrayed me. I'm going to kill him. Instead, he's like, you know, this is a really good opportunity that that whole how do I how do I assess the situation thing. This is a really good opportunity for me to show the people of Rome. And this is something I deeply admire about him. And, you know, we could look at the context of the times and how we would apply our own modern viewpoint on it. But like he I do genuinely think he really, really loved his people in a way that so few leaders in history ever have. And he wanted to show them how peaceful transition, how, how a peaceful transition of power should be. 
So what happens when Marcus gets his boys and they're about to go tell this dude, okay, we need to have a conversation about him. The guy kills himself. He kills himself. And then what does Marcus do? Marcus weeps because he did not have the chance to make something good of this situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point to bring up. Yeah. Um, and the Stoics, they, 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 I probably would have killed the guy. <laughs> well, this not perfect. A stoic philosophy will tell you that you need to, uh, you know, make sure you are making the most of every moment and assess, uh, uh, assessing how you can demonstrate virtue and virtue just doesn't mean um, uh, doing what's right. It means pursuing excellence really in, in a, a broader, a broad sense to the Greeks and to, uh, to the Ro- later Romans. And so, yeah, they would tell you every situation you come upon, you can always demonstrate um, virtue. And Seneca has a great quote about, about it is never is a man um, barred from, from from virtue regardless of where he's at i can't remember the exact quote but um but uh but yeah and so uh, uh what would be in, in in any situation um what would be the right course of action and how could you demonstrate the most amount of virtue in that given situation and um i guess to relate it to the earlier point relate this this concept here to the earlier point you were bringing up about how some people might see it as uh, stoic philosophy is contradictory to Christianity. It's uh, stoic philosophy very much ingrained the four cardinal virtues um, into um, uh, Western civilization. Plato had written about the virtues and so did Aristotle. Stoics took those virtues and really made them um, uh, the core uh, uh, force in ethics in Western, uh, in, in the Western tradition and, and Christianity, um, like Augustine and, and Thomas Aquinas to, to a later extent, you know, they, they, they integrated the virtues. I, I got virtue stop ethics. Fast. Who wrote, who, who wrote city of God? That's Augustine, right? That's Augustine. Okay. So I was yeah. thinking of the right person. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Please continue. Yeah. Augustine, Augustine, however you want to say it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so virtue ethics really. I mean, it was it was it was definitely Plato was was pretty much the prime driving force on virtue ethics originally, but the Stoics really made it made a case of it, and um, 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 I think uh, I think you can look back and see that uh, there's a lot of harmony between uh, Christianity. And Stoic ethics. You know, interestingly, uh, Dante, um, who was, I mean, by all accounts, nobody could deny that Dante wasn't a Christian. Um, <laughs> he, uh, in his Divine Comedy, uh, establishes Cato the Younger. Um, he's one of the few pagans that's 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 uh, honored in his Divine Comedy. So, Cato the Younger is charged with guarding the gates of purgatory in uh in in his uh divine comedy there so uh, you know there's definitely um there's definitely some harmony and the early christians definitely looked to some of these uh greek philosophers and to the those famous romans as as uh, good examples that you could still learn from even though they weren't christians these people lived before the time of christ so 
Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, the one thing that I, I have had to really, because, you know, philosophy is only good if you apply it to yourself. And the one thing that, and I, I mean, I was, I was a raging Ayn Rand objectivist for a while. I still, I still read the Fountainhead once a year. I, I like it as a book. There's a lot of things that, you know, I, I think, I think everybody should read Ayn Rand because it's all, all her books force you to ask yourself how you would approach really shitty circumstances. And she really makes you question parts of your worldview and your belief system that you may have never thought of. So I think as a, as an exercise in understanding where you stand on things, I think everyone should read her just for the benefit of that, regardless of where you land on it. But the one thing that, you know, I, because I, I read somewhere, I think it was uh, the Ayn Rand Institute. They actually wrote an article. Actually, it's funny. When you Google stoicism, it's actually one of the first sponsored ads on Google. And it's basically like why objectivists should not like stoicism. And I read it because I'm like, oh, I wonder what they're going to bitch about. And I mean, the thing about objectivism is ultimately it's hardcore determinism. It's you are what you are. And that's just it. What really, what, what really made stoicism something that I'm really trying to incorporate in more of my life and why I think it really is consistent with not just, you know, my, my libertarian beliefs and my Christian worldview is I, I could really sum it up to one word, pursuit. Every other, you know, fad, every other mindset movement that comes and goes with the sands of time, they all tell you to become. They all tell you to be something. What Christianity and what Stoicism do is they're always telling you to do one thing, pursue. You, you can never be perfect. You can never be the absolute example of what a good, righteous man should be. But you should always be in pursuit of that. And as long as you do that with a whole heart, that is the most anyone can ask of you. Yeah, yeah. I, I would... Uh that's a good way to look at things. That's a good, um, that's a good philosophy to have value to have, um, especially in the world of growing nihilism that you were alluding to earlier, where people don't have purpose or they feel like they don't have purpose where they're taught that implicitly, maybe that life has no meaning. There are a lot of people out there, I think in search of purpose and uh for me first off it's my roman catholic faith but uh but you know here on earth how do we train how do we um how do we find our purpose how do we apply ourselves in a purposeful meaning every day and um you know it's it is pursuit of um pursuit of uh for me it's pursuit of virtue you know yeah. So. To, to kind of toss this back at you, do you think you could be the statesman you are today if you did not practice Stoic virtue in your life? Do you think you would be better, worse? Where, where, where do you see that if that was divorced of you right now? I have to credit the Stoic philosophy for um, my friend's joke. In the, they've joked in the past and they've said, uh, you may be the first Irish stoic. So, <laughs> so because, you know, the Irish are known for a lot of things. And one of them, um, one of the stereotypes happens to be, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, they're not very good with patience and with moderation on, uh, on, uh, uh, your temperament. So, uh, you know, I had an Irish temper in my youth. And so that's one thing that stoic philosophy has really helped me out with a whole lot is been to, to focus on patience, um, to focus on temperance, um, self-control, um, and that's that's really key in in a lot of circumstances in the legislature, um, where especially if you're a libertarian leading um, legislator, where you know the seat of power isn't look at people like that very fondly. Um, um, you know, it's 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 it it teaches you a whole lot. Um, the Stoic philosophy can teach you a whole lot in those sorts of situations. Um, to just focus on what you can control and, uh, and, and, and to understand where other people are coming from, especially when you could have perceived them as wronging you. They might be wronging you, by the way, uh, but try to understand where they're coming from. And, you know, one thing I usually do in my head is say, well, this is just a person that's ignorant and they really don't understand much of anything else. So, you know, why, why should I be so upset with this guy? You know, So, you know, the only thing I will say about that is sometimes you do need to be hard on other guys. It doesn't mean, you know, drop your defenses and just uh, be passive about things. Um, When other people, other individuals in the legislature that I know, know the truth, uh, are smart enough to understand the truth, have reached the truth, yet repeatedly refuse to exercise the truth. That's something that I have a hard time forgiving. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's so. it, going back. I, I, I've been looking a lot the, at, at the plague at the 13 year plague, because I mean, just talk about timing where we can really see the history might not repeat itself, but certainly does rhyme. I, I think Marcus says like one of the most terrifying nights he ever slept through was the night after he announced that he was going to do an audit of all state bureaucrats. And he was like, okay, we need to start putting money towards the people who are dying in the streets. Rome looks like a graveyard instead of a city. So I need to make sure that money's being spent and people lost their shit about that. And there's a guy who's fighting I mean, he's he's fighting Germanic Gaul tribes. I mean, he's fighting everybody. This is a dude who, when he says the most terrifying night is when he said he was going to audit his own politicians. That that's certainly something a lot of people can relate to. But yeah. I, I, I am just curious. Um, I don't. I, I've, I've I've had the the weird displeasure of meeting far too many politicians, whether yeah. they be dog catchers or governors, and they. A lot of them really try and show their credentials and they, they, they want you to think that they have at least, you know, something between the ears. But I think a lot of them are just actually really dumb people. Do, do, other, do other representatives in the legislature ever come up and, you know, have they ever struck up a conversation like, hey, I don't understand where you're coming on with this. What's this whole stoicism thing? Have they ever actually been slightly curious about it? Because you're open about this stuff. I, I've heard some of your speeches and it's not like you're you're hiding where your inspiration for some of your motives come with this. Um, um, sometimes, yeah, there, there are some guys that are curious and those are the guys that you really want to get into some conversations with because those are the guys that 
I think um, might have a little spark inside them that um, that that they that they want to aspire to something more than just uh, you know going to all the receptions and eating the gourmet food and taking the, the, the lobbyist cash and stuff like that. So those are the guys, if they come up to you and they ask about some philosophy for heaven's sake, or even just some of those ideas and inkling of those ideas, then you want to go ahead and try to, uh, you know, maybe develop a relationship or try to at least have more in-depth conversations with, um, you know, some of the guys, some of the people there are, are just so far gone that, no you know they they'll, they'll probably look at you like you're crazy like this guy's an idiot oh like, yeah i mean i would even be doing this kind of thing he just doesn't get it um so there so there are some people that that are lost uh it doesn't mean you treat them terribly you don't treat them bad but you know at all but uh but but you know i mean you, you don't want to dedicate a lot of time on those guys but yeah i mean there's some people that come up and and i'll, I'll i will note the guys and the gals that are the 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 newbies, the freshmen, especially um, um, on the Republican side, yeah, I guess maybe some on the Democratic side, but but it's it seems to be more on the Republican side because I, I, think, I would that, think that anybody who aspires for any type of public office, regardless as to where they fall ideologically wise, they all think they're at, at the start at least they all think they're there to do something good for the sake of others. Yes, yes, that's what I was getting. So, so that's a fair statement, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's just, it's just, um, I think, I think there are some. Um, qualities or some properties to uh what we would call left-wing thought versus versus more right-wing thought um that are more um agreeable to some of the things that we're talking about now so i think on the right you know there are a lot of people that are, are more focused on 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 maybe hard truths right versus Versus on the left, it, it, it just more focused on a more utilitarian, uh, benevolent, compassionate. I just don't want to hurt feelings. Sort of uh, equality type uh, uh, attitude, um, which you know, when, when someone, I'm not faulting that right off the get go. If that's all you know, you know, you have been exposed to other things, then you know it's not your fault. But I'm just saying, it's been my experience where new freshman legislators that come in, especially on the Republican side, they didn't sign up to be told just to go along with the party apparatus and do as they're told. And that's what they find out. The the party leaders say, hey, listen, this is the deal. Vote with the party. You get rewarded. Don't vote with the party. Um, If you, if you, if you, if you dissent, or dare to go along with those who do, you will be punished, you know. And but when they see people that stand up and 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 talk about these things that are related to truth, they say, "I want to be like those guys." I don't, you know. There is that, you know. I, you know, it doesn't always work. You know, it doesn't always work. They don't always come along with you, but there is that spark at first, and that's really where you got to dig on that one virtue called courage. And if they can, if they can utilize that, then, then you could, you could definitely overcome the the party apparatus, the punishment, the, um, the establishment's tools with this philosophy. Sometimes you can, you can break through to people. 
I mean, for, for me, the, the years that I thought, okay, if I, if I just do the right thing, if I work for the right people, if I do all this stuff, I'm going to have my own, you know, staffer job. And then maybe one day I'll run for something and I'll have my own, you know, Mr. Whatever goes to Washington moment. Mr. Smith goes to Washington moment. And I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of people like me take a few steps forward and you always have the good cases and you have the bad cases. And I, I obviously went a different path. You know, they say if you don't succeed in politics, go into journalism. And if journalism doesn't work out, organized crime is very lucrative. <laughs> but it's it's definitely one of those things where it's, I don't know. I, I, I want to believe that people have good intentions, but how those intentions are played out are just sometimes they really screw people over. And I mean, one thing I like, I know we're, we're running close on time. I'll, I'll try not to monologue about this. One thing I do notice about Ryan holiday and folks, I mean, daily stoic, I, I've, I listen to the daily stoic podcast every day. I'm, I, I read conspiracy by Ryan holiday. Um, the obstacles, the way, I mean, I think in terms of modern people really kind of pushing it online, he's, he's the person you're, you're going to want to, you know, go check out. But the one thing I will say I've noticed about Ryan Holiday is that he is probably a bit more of a left bent person. And then you really look at the people that he he really talks about in terms of being in the in the world of politics. And he brings up two examples of people that really kind of, you know, I don't really like Barack Obama and Abraham Lincoln. Now, yeah, he he makes some points where, okay, I, I can see where he's making some objective observations about them. I get it. I'm not going to say I don't like Ryan Holiday because he's a totalitarian, you know, liberal and all this other stuff. But that's the one thing I've noticed about him. But, you know, I, I, I looked into his examples of, you know, Lincoln practicing stoicism. And I was like, I, I think we can find another example. And to kind of keep it in the Civil War realm, one thing, being a good Virginian I know is – you know, what happened to Robert E. Lee after the Civil War? I think how we treat the people we defeat often says more about us than it does about them. And Lincoln, through all his faults, I will say that the one thing that he did that I don't think anybody else in his position, especially others in the Republican Party at the time, did was he said, we're going to go ahead and bring them back into the union and we're going to treat them like citizens. We're going to treat Confederate soldiers as veterans. We're going to bring in some of the people that rebelled against us back into the Senate. And then he got shot. But, you know, you, you look at Robert E. Lee when he, um, I mean, they, they took his land. Arlington cemetery was the Lee property. And I mean, he was broke. He never got his citizenship, his citizenship back until like the seventies, somebody found a note. I think it was, uh, either Ford or Carter that actually made Robert E. Lee a, a U.S. citizen again. But, um, years later, after he was the president of Washington university, now Washington Lee university, somebody asked him about, you know, would you ever, would you ever do it again? Are you mad? Or do you get upset? Are you depressed about this? You look like shit. What's going on with you? And, you know, he, I I don't know if he was a practicing stoic, but the one thing he said, which is definitely a stoic type of saying was all I can do is do what I can do now. And every other day, my main task at hand is to be a good citizen and to lift up others. And that itself 
to look at a defeated man who is really the, the symbol of a cause, regardless as to what you think of him, folks, that says something. And if I can say something nice about Lincoln, who I don't like, I think if you're not a big fan of Robert E. Lee, you can at least credit him with that. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because on the uh, on the Confederate memorial uh, uh, in Arlington Cemetery or near Arlington Cemetery, anyway, there's an inscription uh, at the base of it that's a famous line from from uh, from Lucan Lucan's uh, uh, famous book on the Civil Wars and. Uh, and it says, though the winning cause pleased the gods, the losing cause pleased Cato. And, uh, and that's, 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 that's what they had inscribed on the Confederate Memorial, which wouldn't be too far away from Lee's, Lee's original. I got to find that. I never knew yeah. about that. Yeah. I've lived here yeah. for like 14 years. I never knew about that. Yeah. That's, I got to check that out. So it, uh, but anyway, yeah, you know, uh, I don't know. Holiday's assessment of Lincoln and, Barack Obama being Stoics, I guess he's, I don't know. I have never read in detail what he says, but I would venture to guess it's, he's more or less going off appearances and how they carried themselves and some of those things. But if you look at actual Stoic philosophy and what it says about uh, in the terms of political philosophy, it was the Stoic philosophy that really expounded on natural law um, and that of um, uh, life and property, and and you can find that through uh, uh, Cicero's famous book, probably the most famous book in history, next to the Holy Bible, is Cicero's book on duties, and that was the second book off the Gutenberg Press, right behind the Holy Bible, and it is written um, uh, uh, from Stoic ethics. It's on politics, and it, among other things, um, expounds on you know government's role. Government's role should be strictly confined to to uh, protecting life and private property. And so, uh, so I, yeah, I, Lincoln I, I wasn't would, really good at that part. I think uh, the city yeah, of no, has a few words to say. It wasn't, and it was <laughs> it was Cicero that started the just war doctrine. You know, in his on the Republic, which is also has a lot of stoicism in it. You know, so you know a war. Don't long- target civilian uh, populations. Just no, he, did, he did never said that. <laughs> a war launched <laughs> unprovoked is cannot possibly be just. That's a famous line from from Cicero, and it's very much in line with uh, Stoicism. What Stoicism teaches. So, so yeah, I, I would definitely uh, go. But there's a lot of more left wing people that are promoting Stoicism. And you'll find that there's a lot of atheists that promote Stoicism, uh, even though the the Stoics themselves were not atheists. Most of them were pantheists, but um, um, they definitely believed in some sort of higher power. And and, and you know I'm I'm cool with that though because you know this is gonna sound weird me me putting it this way. So just hang on with me. Like I'm okay with people thinking more about themselves, and by that I mean being more introspective as to how they how they see themselves. I mean, memento mori, I I will die. I probably fucked that paraphrase up too. Like, remember I will die. Like that, 
for me at the very beginning, that's like, yeah, that's very nihilistic and that's very Nietzsche. And like, I'm not really cool for that. But honestly, when you really think about that, yeah, one day you're not going to be here, but you have every day to try and live and do something. And you should be grateful for that. And when I understood that, that changed the whole meaning of it. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Amor Fate, the love of fate, you know, the obstacle in the way is the way. I mean, those are very uplifting things. Ultimately, through this time where a lot of people are going through immense difficulties, my family in Detroit, they were all laid off. I know people who are, you know, they're, they're worried about money. They're worrying about health. In this time where I've had to think, okay, how do I assess my own situation? Yes, have I been inconvenienced? Yes. Am I happy all the time about this? No. But I can take this time to thrive because I've taken what in my gut reaction was a bad situation and I've been able to find something good out of it. I will be a stronger person after this than I was before. And that is what is so empowering. Yeah. And if, if this conversation has shown anything, it's that, hey, I've got a lot more time to read. So <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the, that Nietzsche – what Nietzsche uh, promoted there, Amor Fate. Um, um, you know, I mean, I, he he definitely was was trying to borrow some from the Stoics, but what Nietzsche? Well, yeah, I mean, when he said when he said God is dead, he wasn't saying that as a celebration. I think this is a giant cultural misunderstanding of that. Like he wasn't saying God is dead. He was saying God is dead. Like we we are just stuck with ourselves now. And that can either be a good thing or a bad thing. In his mind, it was like, that's a bad thing. So, yeah, right. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. No, I understand your point there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I've never been a huge fan of Nietzsche, but. Um, Something but, about going crazy and point. throwing shit on the wall just didn't really appeal to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's been good talking to you. We'll have to do it again at some point. Absolutely. Pat, if anyone wants to buy your books, reach out to you, pick your brain, how could they do so? Uh, sure. They could uh, – probably the easiest way if they are interested in uh, Stoicism and they want to buy uh, – the, the last book I wrote was Stoicism in the State House. Um, just buy that off of Amazon. I think it's uh, – you could, you could buy a paperback for – 12 or 13 bucks. Um, I think the hard copy is, is like 19, 20 bucks, but, um, and if they want to reach out to me, my email, my personal email address is Pat McGeehan, 2014 at gmail.com. My last name spelled M C G E E H A N Pat McGeehan, 2014 at gmail.com. Or they can hit me on Facebook. That's easy too. people. You know how the internet works. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not hard to track down, but uh, cool. that's been really good. And you guys, you, you take care, man. Yeah, you too. Definitely, yeah. especially now and afterwards. Always great talking to you, sir. Oh yeah, you yeah. too. I'll see you. Bye. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians network at wearelibertarians.com.